Not only should Walters be your spot before and after every Nats game, but also Walters is an avenue for cheaper Nats tickets. When buying tickets to Nationals Park through the rest of the season, enter promo code WALTERS for 30% off. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Nationals a 1-0 lead now over the Reds. And it'll be Ellie De La Cruz to lead off for Cincinnati. Switch hitter, the rookie batting for the left side. We got a problem with the bat. Really? Some, some contraption on the end of it covering the knob. It looks like it's made out of like a rubber cap or silicone. Davey Martinez called over the home plate umpire, Quinn Wilcott. So we're seeing a replay of that. And so that's why play was stopped and the umpires gathered. And so I, I guess he, let's see, did he, yep, he removed it from the bat. Pitch to Del Cruz is driven a deep right center field. This is gone. Way back and into the second deck in right center field. A laser beam landing into section 242. I saw uh, yesterday towards the end, but I, like I said, I didn't want to do it after that bat. I didn't want, I, you know, I did it before his first at bat. Like I said, I told Quinn, hey, I, I don't, I've never, see, I, I've never seen them wear before. I don't know what's going on with it. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, July 6, 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We'll be on Wednesday night at Nationals Park. Did get a bat check. This of the Reds phenom, third baseman Ellie De La Cruz, but uh, we on Wednesday night also got yet another Nats loss. The Nats in this four-game series against the National League Central leading Cincinnati Reds are uh, getting worked. A 9-2 loss on Wednesday night. The Nats in losing the first three games of this series have been outscored by the Reds 28. That's now our 34-52, second-worst record in the National League. And the 34-52 and 52 is comprised of being 21-22 and 22 on the road versus just 13-30 and 30 at home. The Nats now have lost 13 of their last 14 home games. The Reds now have won 19 of their last 23 games are 48 and 39, two games ahead of the Milwaukee Brewers atop the NL Central. Coming up later in the show, you will hear a good chunk, the majority of Tim Shover's conversation with MLB Pipeline senior writer Jim Callis, who will go in depth on the two LSU Tigers, outfielder Dylan Cruz and starting pitcher Paul Skeens, who figure to go 1-2 in some order on Sunday night when we have the start of the 2023 MLB draft, a draft in which the Nats have the number two overall pick. But 
Mark, off the 6-3 and three road trip, this series against the Reds is proving to be a very humbling series for the Nats. This has been a complete mismatch so far, Al. You name it, pitching, hitting, defense, base running for certain. And even in this case, maybe gamesmanship because the Nats tried to do something to maybe throw the uh, Reds off and it backfired spectacularly on them, as we'll get to here. Look, Cincinnati looks like they are a good team. They are hungry. They are excited. And they're playing really good baseball right now. But boy, have the Nationals played some bad baseball in the first three games of the series, especially the last two. And it's just so discouraging because of how well they played on the road, not just the result of winning six of those nine games, but aside from the one blowout in Philly, they played good baseball pretty much throughout that entire road trip. And I don't understand why that switch is just flipped off when they get back home. They have just not looked at all like the same team these last few nights. And it's been tough to watch these two games, I have to admit. Yeah, this game on Wednesday night was a long game. This is one of those games that like refused to end, even though the outcome of the game was, uh, for the most part, never really in doubt. Well, to break up the monotony, let us get to the bat check. This was bizarre. So umpires shortly before the start of the top of the second checked the bat of Ellie Dela Cruz. The bat at the bottom of the handle had what is known as a blast knob, which also is known as a swing analyzer made by this company called Blast Baseball. The swing analyzer provides real-time feedback via simply being attached to the knob of a bat. Well, Dela Cruz was made to remove this blast knob. Both Nats manager Davey Martinez and Reds manager David Bell ended up being spoken to by the umpiring crew in some form. Dela Cruz in that plate appearance ended up actually striking out against Josiah Gray, although uh, Gray did end up giving up three runs in the inning. But Dela Cruz later in the game was back to having the blast knob. You cover this extensively. You served as the pool reporter after the game. What exactly happened here? Is this illegal or is this not illegal? It is not illegal because of what he specifically was using. So let's go through a few parts here. The tracking device that you're referring to is something that is used very much now in amateur baseball and even in the minor leagues because it provides the kind of data that those players just don't have access to. You get to the big leagues, they have stat cast in every ballpark. You don't really need this thing because you get all that information instantaneously as soon as you get back to the dugout. So you don't need it. But it sounds like De La Cruz was using it in the minors and was comfortable with it. There's the device, but then there is this plastic casing around it that sticks off the end, the knob of the bat. And so he got to the big leagues. And according to the Reds, they petitioned MLB at the time, said he'd like to continue to use this without the actual tracking device in it, just for comfort, I guess. MLB told them that it was fine, that he was cleared. And he's used it ever since. Nobody had brought anything up. Now, Davey Martinez said he noticed it during Tuesday's game. He said he's aware of what that device is, but he had never seen anybody try to use it in a game. So when he saw De La Cruz walk up to the plate for his first at bat in this game, he asked the umpire over and said, hey, I just want to find out what this is. I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but is this something that is legal or not? Does he have the device in there? So where the confusion comes in is the umpires go to look at it. They, as Adrian Johnson told me, had not seen this attempted to be used within a game, didn't know exactly how to handle this. They get on their headset with league headquarters in New York. They're looking for an answer. 
they could not get an immediate answer on the legality of it or not. So rather than make everybody wait for God knows how long that would have been, they told De La Cruz, remove this from your bat for now, set it aside, continue the game. When we get a ruling, we'll let you know what to do about it. He takes that at bat without it. He strikes out, like you said. The next inning before he comes up to bat again, they got the word from MLB that actually this was fine. It was approved. It's not the tracking device. It's just the casing of it. They let the Reds know. He put it back on the bat. He came up to bat and played the rest of the game with it. Davey Martinez said he was fine with that. He was you know, informed what it was. He doesn't have an issue with it. And they proceeded. But a strange thing and the kind of thing that maybe we're going to start seeing more and more of as baseball technology advances. This is common at lower levels, but we have not seen anything like this at a big league level. The funny part is you don't need it at the big league level because you get the same information without that. But was this a non-functioning blast knob and he just had it for comfort, like you said, or was this actually a functioning blast knob? So Adrian Johnson told me that it was only the casing for it, the plastic outer part of it, not the device that goes inside of it. I guess, you know, the device is a little electronic thing. You then put it inside this casing to protect it from getting hit by a pitch or something like that. So the casing still fits around the knob, whether the device is in it or not. They're all insisting that it's only the casing. And since he's been in the big leagues, that's all he's used. So I think that explanation satisfied Davey and the Nats had he actually been using the tracking device, the electronic device, that's a different story. And my sense, I didn't directly ask, but my sense is that that would have been deemed an illegal bat. And not only would he have been out, but he would have potentially been ejected from the game had he been using that. Well, blast knob or not, the Nats got blasted in this game, which included a rough outing by the Nats alone all-star for this season, Josiah Gray. Really disappointing outing for Josiah. He, of course, was coming off a terrific outing, that 2-1 win at the Philadelphia Phillies this past Friday evening. Gray in that game, one run, six innings, eight strikeouts versus one walk. But Gray on Wednesday night, five runs, three earned in five innings. He gave up eight hits, two home runs, two doubles, and four singles. He issued four walks and a hit by pitch. He did have six strikeouts, but he over his five innings threw a lot of pitches and a lot of balls. 102 pitches over five innings, just 55 strikes versus 47 balls. He, in the top of the second, allowed three runs, although only one of them was earned. He actually retired each of the Reds' first two batters in that inning, but uh, then the problem started. Uh, Gray gave up a two-out solo homer by Joey Votto to right field to tie the game at one. Gray induced a grounder off the bat of Spencer Steer for what should have been the third out, but third baseman Jamer Candelario off backhanding the grounder committed a throwing error. His back foot slipped while making the throw. So the inning continued, and Josiah Gray did not respond well to that error. Gave up a two-out RBI double by Tyler Stevenson. Passed a diving Alex Call, who is back at the Major League level, left center field gap for a 2-1 Reds lead. Gray then gave up a two-out first pitch RBI double by the Reds' number nine batter, Will Benson, to right field for a 3-1 Reds lead. Gray then induced a grounder off the bat at TJ Friedel for what should have been the third out, but Second baseman Luis Garcia committed a fielding error, so the Nats oh so generously gave the Reds five outs in that three-run second inning. But Gray was not good in this game. Top of the fourth, a lot of run on a one-out hit by pitch and then two consecutive one-out singles. Top of the fifth, Gray, <laughs> a lot of run on a leadoff homer by Ellie De La Cruz on a laser to the second deck in right field for a 5-1 Reds lead. 455 feet for StatCast, and then in perhaps the moment of the game, Dela Cruz, upon connecting for this homer, 
pointed at the blast knob, pointed at that uh, swing analyzer, or at least the casing on his bat. A little bit of showmanship from Ellie De La Cruz. It was, and I can't say I blame him for doing that, given what the Nationals were suggesting or asking to have checked on it. I can also tell you that David Martinez did not appreciate that. He really likes De La Cruz as a player, doesn't have a problem with him, any of that, but he did acknowledge that he wasn't a fan of the celebration there. I love the way he plays the game. I don't like his antics, you know, after he hit the home run. We could do without that. He's only got two weeks in big leagues, but you know, he's, he's going to be a good player. So we'll see if there's any residual from any of that. But I mean, my God, 455 feet. You talk about a no doubter. That was it. And I don't know this kid, so I don't know what goes through his mind. But his reaction, I think, suggested that he's trying to tell everybody out there, I don't need this thing. I'm a really good player. And if you're going to question my ability to play this game, I'll show you. I'm just going to hit a ball 400 and 55 feet to right center field. He is really exciting. He is really talented. And in a, a case, you know, I, I don't know the exact motivation that Davey had for this. Was this really just an honest check of whatever he had on the bat? Or was it an attempt at some gamesmanship to throw the kid off? Whatever the case was, it didn't work. And Ellie De La Cruz at the end of the night is the one who had the last laugh and stood very tall at six foot seven or whatever he is. Here's what I wonder, right? If you're really that concerned about this mechanism on the bat, why wouldn't you have had this addressed prior to the game? Like, why do you wait until right until he's about to take his first at bat of the game to check this? You know, this ended up becoming a whole big thing during this game. Seems to me this is something that could have been addressed prior to the game if you really wanted to actually address a quote-unquote problem as opposed to engaging in gamesmanship, right? Could they not have done this before the game? It's a good question. I guess the answer would be, number one, maybe they wanted to make sure that he actually was using it again in case he came up to bat and didn't have it. But I think the second part is, and I'm not 100% clear on this, but reading through the rules, I think you can only challenge or, or get a, an equipment check in the moment when it's on the field being used. I don't know that you can preemptively ask for that. Or if you do, you may just be asking them to, you know, can you use this or not? And then they say no. But by asking for it during a game, and if it is deemed illegal, that can have real consequences on that game and on the player potentially being ejected and suspended. So part of this may be you're required to wait until he actually uses it in a game. But part of that may also be if something is wrong, the only way you can benefit from it as the other team is to actually wait to inquire about it during game. There was also a question from some people about doing the check before the at-bat. Why not wait to see if he gets a hit or it's a home run or something like that? And then if you ask for it immediately after that and it is deemed illegal, they would wipe out the hit and eject him from the game. That's the whole George Brett Pintar incident. Well, in the end, it didn't matter because the bat was not deemed illegal. So I don't know that would have benefited them to wait at all. But if you really want to go gamesmanship, you don't just do it when he steps up for the first time. You do it after he hits a home run or something like that. And then the fireworks fly. Yeah. It also just helps if your team plays better, you know, and you don't have to do these little things of checking knobs on bats, things of that nature. But with Josiah Gray, so like I said, disappointing outing for him. You know, it overall has been a very good pre-All-Star break portion of his season, no doubt. His numbers now on the season, 18 starts, ERA 341. But the whip is at 144. We've talked about this. He puts guys on base. This was a clear instance of that. The other thing with him is 
you know, he's not exactly pitch efficient. Like, his outings can be rather laborious. This was a slow-moving game. Gray was throwing a lot of pitches. Every inning required a lot of effort, a lot of work. Again, overall, he's having a really nice season. But if you're picking at some nits with Josiah Gray, those are some things that do stand out. There is real room for improvement there. These are not little things. These are actually significant things in the long run. Yes, a lot of base runners, we've seen him be good for the most part this year at avoiding those big innings, getting out of it. That was not the case in this game, although his defense did not help him in one of those innings and prolonged it and made it a lot worse. But he throws a lot of pitches, even at his best. It's hard for him to complete six innings or go anywhere beyond that because the pitch count is already up to 100. I mean, in this game, he throws 102 pitches in five innings, only 55 strikes. So he really was not there. And he admitted in the fifth inning he felt gassed. Now, is that because the longer innings earlier, the humidity on this night, you know, the end of a long first half of the season? I don't know the answer to that, but that's not a great sign if, you know, in game 86 of the season, you're feeling gassed by the fifth inning as you approach the 90 and 100 pitch mark. This is something he's going to have to work on. Now, I I think he will. I think as we saw last winter, he identifies what needs improvement and he goes about trying to improve it. And he's done a good job of that for the most part this year. But I think that's the next step. You've got to show that you can be more efficient and get quicker outs and actually go into a start believing that six innings is the baseline for a good start, and even seven if you're efficient enough. Well, Josiah Gray put guys on base on Wednesday night, and then so too did the Nats bullpen. Three Nats relievers combined to allow four runs in four innings, although all four of the runs came off one guy. So Amos Willingham was fine. He tossed a scoreless top of the six, but Joe LaSorsa, he was the source of some bad pitching in this game. LaSorsa, four runs in two innings. And these were two innings that I really feel like took years off all of our lives. Uh, LaSorsa was a mess in the top of the seventh, during which he allowed two runs on three singles, a run-scoring balk, a four-pitch walk, and a hit-by-pitch. The Nats went from being down 5-1 to being down 7-1. And then LaSorsa, in the top of the eighth, allows two runs on a double, two singles, and a walk. And then we had Jordan Weems. So he did toss a scoreless top of the ninth, and he has done some really nice things lately. (laughs) But Weems in this game, he tosses the scoreless top of the ninth, despite allowing three consecutive batters to reach base with two outs. He gave up a two-out double, followed by back-to-back two-out walks. He, in the inning, threw 27 pitches, 13 strikes versus 14 balls. I mean, I joked that this was a game that refused to end. That Weems inning like reeked of that, of you get two outs and then like all of a sudden he starts putting guys on base. You're like, what is going on here? But man, you know, LaSorsa, we talked about him getting cut by the Tampa Bay Rays and we said, well, you know, we didn't pitch much for them. He's a young guy. Maybe this is just a numbers thing. Well, maybe, or maybe the Rays saw some things in Joe LaSorsa because it has not been smooth sailing for him with the Nats. No, he had a couple of good moments, that big strikeout in San Diego and a couple others, but the game in Philly, the blowout game, he was a big part of that. Obviously, this one was ugly. And, you know, it's not just giving up runs. It's the way you're doing it with walks, hit batters, the balk to score the run was bad. Now, David Martinez kind of hung him out to dry. Okay. LaSorsa threw 26 pitches in the seventh inning and then sent him back out there for the eighth and did not have anybody warming until very late in that inning. And LaSorsa ends up throwing 51 pitches in two innings of relief. Now, you can say 
it's a blowout game. I don't want to burn up my other guys. Sorry, kid. You got to go out and take this one for the team. And, you know, he did everything he could and, and, you know, required 51 pitches to get through the two innings. But that also, as I've seen enough over the years to know, when you see a pitcher left out to dry like that, that often means that the manager, the pitching coach have reason to believe that they aren't going to need his services the next few days or maybe the next couple of weeks. And nothing was announced after the game, but I would not be surprised if a roster move is coming. It wouldn't be the first time a reliever threw that many pitches and then got sent down the next day. Well, it has been notable. The Nats have gone from not having much in the way of bullpen transactions to having a whole lot here these last few weeks. A lot of guys moving up, coming down. We've had some guys placed on injured lists. So yeah, I mean, that does make a lot of sense what you just said. I mean, the Reds in this series are just mashing Nats pitching. The Reds over these last two games have totaled 16 hits in each game. It has been like batting practice in a lot of ways. Hey, Nats Chat Podcast. Tim Shover is here to tell you about the Game Time app. My wife is a big concert fan and I'm a bit of a newbie and don't know where to begin in terms of how to get concert tickets. Then... I remembered about Game Time, the best place for last-minute ticket deals. Plenty of options on there, such as Luke Bryan, Trey Anastasio, and Chris Stapleton up in Baltimore. The options are endless. Game Time is the fastest and easiest way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest-growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you would know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Snag the tickets without the stress with GameTime. Download the GameTime app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download GameTime today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Hey, guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Summer is here. The heat, the humidity, forcing your air conditioning unit into overdrive, leading to energy bills that are higher than James Wood's potential. (laughs) The solution, new windows from my friends at Window Nation, which is offering a great deal. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years, plus two free windows for every two windows that you buy. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Protect your home and increase the value of your home with great new windows from Window Nation, which does windows right. You know, the average installer from Window Nation has over 16 years of experience with over 20 thousand windows installed no money down no payments and no interest for two years plus two free windows for every two windows that you buy call 866-90nation or visit windownation.com that's 866-90nation or windownation.com and make sure that you tell window nation that al galdi sent you hey nat chat listeners the world's most comfortable pants are at bird dogs if you go to birddogs.com, all one word, you can look at their various selection and see their soft, stretchy khakis that will last forever. Bird Dogs fit better than regular shorts. They're made of a stiff, restricting cotton, and I believe it based upon customer reviews. Go to birddogs.com pool and enter promo code pool for a free Yeti-style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com pool for a free Yeti-style tumbler. You won't want to take your bird dogs off. We promise you. 
Here's the set. And now the pitch. Inside. Gets away from Stevenson. Here comes Thomas breaking for the plate. The throw. The tag by the pitcher. And he doesn't hold on to the ball. Thomas is safe. The Nationals score. They lead it one to nothing. Over to third goes Manessas. Dom Smith to second. You know, you look at the Nats offense and, you know, here we go again. Broken record. But the Nats on Wednesday night did have 10 hits. Did draw four walks. Those totals are good, but the Nats scored just two runs. Why? Well, nine of the 10 hits were singles, and the Nats went just one for eight with runners in scoring position. Some guys got on base, but, you know, we had something that was really egregious, and it's not the first time we've had something like this. Bottom of the second, bases loaded, nobody out, and you don't score a single run. I mean, that is criminal, especially for a team that doesn't hit for much power. You have the bases loaded like that, and you don't score a run. Like I said, Nats put guys on base in this game. Did a pretty good job, actually, at getting on base. But when it came to uh, turning those base runners into runs, different story. Seven of their first nine batters in this game reached base, Al. Only one of them scored, and he did so not on a hit, not on a walk, not on a productive out, but on a wild pitch. That's the only way they got one of those seven guys who reached base across the plate. And if that doesn't tell you everything right there, I don't know what else will. Second straight day that they had the bases loaded and didn't score. Now, yesterday they had a couple runs earlier in the inning and then loaded the bases with nobody out and then didn't add on anything from that point. But there's a consistent theme here. They get into these spots and they are swinging. Number one, they're swinging at everything. Number two, they're swinging at pitches out of the zone and making outs that way. Luis Garcia, I don't want to just pick on him individually, but his at bat in this one was the worst of them. After Lane Thomas pops up for the first out, Garcia comes in. He swung at five consecutive pitches to start the at-bat, and I'm not sure that any of them were actually in the zone. Maybe one was on the edge, but he swung at five straight pitches, and on the fifth one, he grounds into a double play to end the inning. The guy the Reds were starting in this game, Graham Ashcraft, he entered with a 6.66 ERA. He did not look effective at all in the first two innings. A couple of walks, a hit batter, a wild pitch loading the bases with nobody out, and they let him get off the hook. There was every reason to think they should have knocked that guy out, delivered a defining blow to him, and they could not do that. And the guy ends up going six innings, allowing one run. The uh, Luis Garcia experience in this series has not been good. 0 for 9 over the first two games of this series. We did have another productive game for Lane Thomas on Wednesday night. He went two for four with two singles and a walk. Also had an outfield assist, top of the third, an outfield assist for the third out. He threw out Jake Fraley uh, in his attempt to advance to third base on a Joey Votto two-out single to right field. Although Jamer Candelario hurt his left thumb on the play. Do we know is Candelario all right? Because he did come out of the game late in the game. I think he's fine because he stayed in for the vast majority of the game, and then they pulled him once it was a blowout, and they had also replaced Corey Dickerson at that point. So I think it was just for that. I didn't see anything with him in the clubhouse afterwards. So I think he's fine. But yeah, that was a weird play. You know, a great throw by Lane Thomas. They got the tag down, and as we're waiting for them to make the ruling on the challenge, you realize, wait a minute, the trainer's looking at Candelario. What happened to him on that plate? Doesn't seem like it's anything, but... You know, we'll see. Quick turnaround to a day game on Thursday. It wouldn't be shocking if maybe he was out of the lineup. Yeah, it looked like the thumb got jammed on the shoulder of the runner as he was a sliding head to third base. Although, you know, I credit Candelario. He had a tremendous double later in the game. 
you know, a true hustle double. He ended at one run seventh, a one out double to the right center field gap on an 0-2 pitch. Uh, Corey Dickerson had a couple of hits, two for three with two leadoff singles. And we did have the return of Alex Cole. He has gotten the call back to the majors. And that's on Wednesday afternoon, recalling Alex Cole from AAA Rochester and designating outfielder Derek Hill for assignment. So the stay for Cole at Rochester ends up being just a few weeks. I mean, it was not that long ago that the Nats sent him down to Rochester, but things did not go well for Derek Hill at the major league level. Derek Hill for the Nats at the major league level, 13 games, 50 plate appearances, an OPS of just 411, an OPS plus of 17, which is like borderline unheard of. Although it's ironic, he actually had an RBI hit, his first RBI for the Nats, and what ends up being Hill's last game with the Nats. But look, with Alex Cole, things did not go well for him at the major league level earlier this season. We get that. But defensively, he was good. 0.5 defensive war per baseball reference at the major league level during his first stint with the Nats at the major league level this season. So I guess if nothing else, he's a defensive upgrade in center field. But boy, Derek Hill, Alex Cole, the lack of offense in center field, a real issue. I mean, it sounds so funny, but the Nats are missing Victor Robles' bat with him out with his back issue. 100%. Here are the numbers. Robles in 126 plate appearances this year, batting 299, 385 on base percentage, 750 OPS. Those are really good numbers, especially for him. Call and Hill, you combine theirs as center fielders. 189 plate appearances, so well more than Robles has had, and they've collectively hit 197 with a 265 on base percentage and a 508 OPS, zero power from them at all. Look, I get center field's a defensive position, and they, they've done fine in the field, but you got to provide something offensively, and the two of them have not done it at all. Alex said he went down to AAA, worked on some things. He was pleased, not just with the results in Rochester, but the process of it. He felt like he was making more consistent, solid contact. He was happy about that, but he knows it's got to now translate at the big league level. He's getting a golden opportunity that not everyone would get in that spot. He's not just back up, but he's going to play every day as their center fielder because this is who they have now until Robles is ready. And as we talked about the other day, I don't think Robles is coming back anytime soon, given um, the lack of baseball activity that he's doing in West Palm Beach. So Alex Call has the chance here again to do this, but he's got to start showing something. He did have a nice bunt single in this game. So there you go. That's a good start. He made a catch up against the wall. That's nice, but they've got to see more production from him. And especially when he comes up, runners on base, a chance to do something productive. They desperately need that from him. Well, the Nats will try to avoid a four-game sweep to the Reds Thursday afternoon at 105. Mackenzie Gore will be the Nats' starting pitcher. And dare I say, this is a fairly significant outing for Mackenzie Gore. He's coming off a disastrous outing, that 19-4 loss at the Phillies this past Saturday. Gore in that game, seven runs in two and two-thirds innings. Been up and down these last few weeks. You know, I, I think we still would say he's been more up than down overall so far this season, but his numbers for this season have turned rather ugly. I mean, he now has an ERA well into the fours. He, like Gray, has put a good number of guys on base this season. It would be lovely to see Mackenzie Gore pitch well and uh, see the Nats avoid a four-game sweep, and I don't know, maybe actually generate a victory in their home ballpark. That would be something. That would be a rare sighting around here, would it not? I do think this is a really important start for him. He was really not good 
in Philadelphia, got knocked out early. And the last thing you want going into the All-Star break is to have back-to-back ugly outings where now you're starting to question, boy, what's going on with him? What is what we saw over the first half? Is the good still outweighing everything else? Or now are there some concerns that this thing might linger for a while? So I think it's an important outing for him. He doesn't have to dominate, but he's got to pitch much more effectively for them and just go into the All-Star break feeling better about himself. And yes, for the Nationals, look, the Reds have done a great job. They're beating everybody right now. Boy, you don't want to be swept in a four-game series after such a good road trip that has had. And by the way, the Texas Rangers, another surprisingly really good team this year, are coming in next to close out the first half. This has the potential to really go south before they break on Sunday evening. So, yeah, find a way, get one win in this series, and uh, you know, lick your wounds and hope you do better against Texas. Yeah, and play cleaner. I mean, this has been a demoralizing first three games of this four-game series. A better showing, even if the Nats are going to lose, you know, lose in a way that is at least respectable. We have not seen that over these last few games. Well, you tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter, at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us via our new website, too, NatsChatPodcast.com, at which you can listen to previous shows in their entireties and also order yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. Thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Check out his site, timnewmark.com. So for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening. We will talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you now with a really good conversation, our own Tim Shovers, with a guy who knows the MLB draft like few people on the planet. Jim Callis, senior writer for MLB Pipeline, a deep dive on the two LSU studs, Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens. There it is! And for the first time since 2009, and seventh overall, the Tigers can say we are champions. Please, an honor to be joined by Jim Callis, senior writer for MLB Pipeline at MLB.com. MLB Pipeline is the authority, as far as I'm concerned, for MLB draft and prospect coverage. This is the third straight year Jim has joined us in various capacities on the Nats Chat Podcast. Jim, great to have you back. You were recently at the MLB Draft Combine. I'll be honest, I did not know of its existence. What is it, and has the event grown in recent years? Yeah, it's only been around for three years, Tim. And thanks for the kind introduction. And it's funny because the part you see on TV, MLB Network broadcasts two days of workouts. You see BP. You see got your pitchers throwing three-minute bullpen sessions. You see some infield, outfield, guys making throws. But that's almost the least important part of it because, A, a lot of the top players don't participate in it. They have nothing to prove at the combine. B, even the guys do participate, the vast majority of those guys you've scouted all season or you know last summer on the showcase circuit. So you know those guys pretty well. It's actually, I think, the stuff that doesn't get seen that even that matters more. It's the medical testing. The big thing is first year medical testing was, was optional. It's still optional, but there was no real incentive to do medical testing. The last two years came to an agreement with the union that if you do a full medical exam at the combine, you're guaranteed 75% of your slot when you get picked. So instead of having a Kumar Rocker situation where you get drafted and then you take a post-draft physical and the team doesn't like it and the deal falls apart, this way the vast majority of guys go to the combine. There's over 300 players there, do the physicals, 
like you know what you're getting into beforehand. So that's important. There's interviews with all the teams, you know, like kind of like speed dating where you'll meet with like Nationals. Every club had a suite there. Nationals probably had six or ten people in that suite interviewing prospects throughout the week of the combine. So it, it, it's funny. The stuff that happens off the field, I think, actually matters more than the stuff that happens on the field for most of the guys. What are the chances that the Nats, who have the number two overall pick in the MLB draft, do not draft either of the LSU stars, pitcher Paul Skeens or outfielder Dylan Cruz? I think pretty slim. I mean, nothing's set in stone, but I, but I, I think it's going to be one of those two guys. I think I actually think if they're presented with the chance to take both of them, from what I've heard so far, I think they would take Paul Skeens, the pitcher, who's the best pitching prospect in the draft since Steven Strasburg. And, you know, Nationals fans might be like, oh, Steven Strasburg, he's been hurt a lot. But when Steven Strasburg was healthy, he's one of the best pitchers in baseball. He helped the Nationals win a World Series. And I just think it's hard to find guys. I would take Skeens number one, personally. And I love Dylan Cruz. I just think it's harder to find. I know pitchers are risky. It's harder to find a Paul Skeens than it is to find a Dylan Cruz. And Dylan Cruz is a great player, too. As you know, I mean, the Nationals farm system, you got James Wood, you have Elijah Green, you have Robert Hassel, you have Christian Vaccaro, you have Jeremy DeLaros, you have T.J. Watt. You have all these outfielders in the system. And not that you draft for need, but they already have more outfielders than they know what to do with. And like I said, I think Skeens is their guy if they both are there. Like if the Pirates cut a deal and do a discount of one, I think the Nationals would take Skeens over Cruz. I think if the Pirates take Skeens number one, I do think the Nationals then aren't going to say, oh, we're not going to take an outfielder because – the top tier is, is Paul Skeens and four outfielders. I think they would take Dylan Cruz. I would be very surprised if they didn't take one of those two guys. You mentioned the Steven Strasburg comparison, and there was a lot. The conversation about that in 09 was dominated around money and his signing bonus and question marks of whether the Nationals would be able to sign him. You just alluded to money with Pittsburgh and slotting and Skeens. What is the difference in the money as it relates to top draft picks now compared to 14 years ago? Yeah, well... When, when Strasburg was drafted, it was a totally different system. Same thing when Harper was drafted, same thing when the Lerndome was drafted. You didn't have a agreed-upon slotting system with the union. MLB would recommend slots for the teams that, frankly, were a joke. They were like 40% below market value. And they would lean on the teams. Like, you couldn't force the teams to adhere to them, but they would apply political pressure and try to get the teams to adhere to them. And, like, three-quarters of the teams did adhere to them. Now, one, the Nationals were not one of those teams, and they built a World Series winner largely through the draft. Two, and this didn't really make any logical sense, if you gave a guy a major league contract, which you can't do now, it's against the rules, they didn't care because that was considered an outlier. So Strasburg got, I guess he got a $7.5 million signing bonus as part of a $15.1 million major league contract, which is remains the largest guarantee in draft history. And won't be broken for a while because now we have a set system. So anyway, that's how they got around it. Although, again, because they didn't want teams to announce these big deals and somehow influence the other deals, Strasburg, if you remember, Strasburg still got announced at like 11.55 p.m. on the night of the signing deadline. There was no pomp and circumstance. It was just like in the cover of darkness. Now, since 2012, they've agreed to a bonus pool system. And essentially, each pick in the first 10 rounds, I'm trying to make this concise, each pick in the first 10 rounds has an assigned value to it. And you add those up, and that's your bonus pull for the first 10 rounds. And it's pretty hard and fast because you can go over it. And if you go over up to 5%, you pay a 75% tax on the overage. But if you go over your pool by more than 5%, you start losing first-round picks. And nobody's ever done that. I don't think anybody ever will. So anyway, back to the Nationals. So this year, 
the number one pick comes with a signed value of $9.7 million. The Nationals pick comes with a signed value of $9 million. Their pool for Washington is 14 and a half, which means with the 5% overage, they can go to about $15.2 million. So my guess is there's all these rumors that Cruz wants more than the Pirates pick value. And you can, you can give a guy more. You just have to give other guys less so you don't start losing first round picks. Like there's rumors that Cruz might want $10 million. You know, Skeens, I, you know, I can see Skeens signing for right around $9 million. I mean, and again, I don't know exactly the dollar figures. We'll have a better idea as it gets closer. But I, I would think Skeens would sign for nine. And I mean, Cruz is a Boris guy. The Nationals have signed a ton of, like I just mentioned, Strasburg's a Boris guy. Rendon was a Boris guy. Alex Meyer was a Boris guy. Bryce Harper was a Boris guy. A lot of Boris guys that the Nationals have signed. So I, I wouldn't necessarily be shocked if there was a scenario where the Nationals were willing to pay Cruz more than the Pirates were. No one makes things complicated quite like Major League Baseball. <laughs> so appreciate you going through that. I know that was not the easiest thing. Along the lines of Dylan Cruz, he won the Golden Spikes Award this season, and his numbers are video game-like, 418 average and an OPS of 1268. Jim, what's your uh, Dylan Cruz scouting snapshot? Yeah, I mean, he's the best hitter in the draft. He'll be one of the best hitters in the minor leagues as soon as he signs. Plus power. He's running better this year. You could say plus speed. I think you you feel like he's got a good chance to stick in center field. Where coming into the year, you were hoping he'd stick in center field. The arm's fine. But, I mean, you're talking about a potential, you know, 300, 25, 30 home run guy who might be able to play center field. And, and he controls the strike zone exceptionally well, Tim. So I, I don't think – I think he's the type of guy who should not have a very difficult time adjusting to professional baseball. I, I think he's going to hit the ground running. And I, I could see him in the big like, – again, depending on who takes him and, and the makeup of that team. If you told me he was in the big leagues at some point in 2024, I, I think that's you know pretty realistic. This ball is tattooed deep, deep, deep. You can pucker up and kiss that baby goodbye. Dylan Cruz rips one on a line. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.